Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, the Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. Delighted today to be talking with Rita Gunther McGrath, who is the author, first of all, is an expert, and was, if I understand her background, had was in the political arena as an IT person, so we're going to want to touch on that, how you got to where you were, to where you are. Uh, Discovery-Driven Growth, a Breakthrough Process to Reduce Risk and Seize Opportunity. What is Discovery-Driven Growth, and how did you get to this book from where you started? <laughs> well, Discovery-Driven Growth is an extension of an original concept called Discovery-Driven Planning, which originated with work that we did on two fronts. Um, the first front was looking at big business flops, you know, the Michelin Pax tire, the iridiums of the world, the web vans, things that had gone wrong. And what we found in almost every case was that they were meticulously planned using conventional methods. The second origin of the idea where we looked at how those ways of planning contrasted with the way habitual entrepreneurs think about their business. So these are people that start many more businesses uh, over time than uh, just one. Habitual being another way of saying serial? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, they start more than one business okay. and they do it over and over again. And the argument is, you know, it's possible to get lucky once. As an entrepreneur, you just hit it just right. Um, it's a lot more demanding to do it multiple times over. And what we found is that when you contrasted the two, that the entrepreneurs tended to plan in a very different way than the businesses that had the big flops. And so what we uh, did was we tried to then line that out in, in terms of a how-to, in terms of a how could you go and do the same thing. And discovery-driven planning really gets rid of a few key assumptions that are present in conventional plans. So, so just for the sake of our listeners here, um, in fact, the background for discovery-driven growth is with a small company, an entrepreneur, uh -huh. and then you laid those off on uh, large corporate America so that the book is relevant to both to any size organization? Oh, definitely, definitely. And what we did to extend the original concept, so we, the original idea, article was published in 1995, the Discovery Driven Planning article. Yep. And what's been fantastic is the intervening years have given us the opportunity to actually apply this technique very broadly. So we use it, certainly we use it in our entrepreneurship classes. It's a staple at many leading business schools, uh, syllabi. Uh, but we've also used it very successfully with large corporations who are trying to get better at, at renew, new, renewing themselves, you know, continually creating opportunities. Because as we know, in today's world, uh, yesterday's business model may not take you very far when it comes to what you're up against tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So it's really for anybody, any organization that's trying to succeed in conditions that have a fair amount of uncertainty in them. And, you know, today, who, <laughs> who doesn't have that? <laughs> how, how timely is this? Well, you know, it's very interesting. We really got started with companies looking at innovation or, or new business growth into new areas. And what we found with the way the economy is moving is the world has really come to our doorstep now. People are saying, hey, my conventional approaches are not working under these highly uncertain conditions. How do I learn to do something different? Now, for those of us who have been in business for a while, and certainly the span of your career, when you look back at, uh, if you can break up the decades, uh -huh. the, you said that the original article was uh, came out in 1995. Yes. Uh, how would you describe the theories of growth Let's not go back to the 70s, but let's say the 80s, mm -hmm. and then what led to this, and now how it has changed, and then perhaps how it has changed again in the current framework. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that the theory of growth has really changed. Uh, you know, the concept that you can get into new opportunity. Well, areas. I guess the drivers of growth. Yeah. Um, well, I think a couple of things have made the current environment substantially different than you might have found, say, in the 80s. Um, you know, the dominant framework in the 80s, if you go back that far, was you remember the one with the, the dogs and the cows and the shooting stars and all that kind of right, thing? Right, exactly. And the theory then was what you wanted to do was establish an early foothold in a rapidly growing market and gain as much market share as you possibly could. And market share was really considered the main driver of profitability. 
And I'd say that sort of had its last great hurrahs in the dot-com bust, because what we saw then was all kinds of companies going into these markets with the theory that if they could get big fast and establish a target market threshold, you know, companies like Webvan would be a great example, uh, that they would be way ahead of the competitors and nobody would be able to catch them. And I think we had to learn a lot of painful lessons about how that doesn't necessarily apply. Um, in the meantime, what we're learning today is that a lot of the real growth opportunities come from either markets that are entirely new or business models that are entirely new. Um, and that is in many ways facilitated, of course, by the Internet, but also by you know a lot of the infrastructure that creates a flat world. So things that would have been logistically infeasible or impossible 15 years ago are now quite doable. Uh, companies, for example, like Zappos, um, who actually will send you two sets of shoes to try <laughs> and then guarantee free shipping on the way back. Well, that never would have worked, you know, in a world of very, very expensive transportation costs and limited logistical capability and, and without the web support. Uh, so what you're seeing, I think, is today an explosion in both the possibility and the feasibility of undertaking really different business models. Now, what that's also meant is I think you're seeing a de-emphasis on the industry as the fundamentally interesting unit of strategy analysis. So if you go to back to the 80s again, you would have had, um, oh, Michael Porter's five forces analysis, right, which would have been looking at your buyers, your suppliers, the rate of potential entry into your market, the extent to which you have a unique offer, there are no substitutes for it, and the extent to which there's rivalry in your industry. Well, in today's environment, what we're seeing is it, it's difficult to even define what an industry is. <laughs> you know, and, and the most important competition often isn't from within your industry. It's coming at you from some oblique kind of area. Right. Um, so I think we're or, really or, or from an oblique territory or physicality, sure, geography that you Absolutely. never anticipated. Well, exactly. And so I think what we're seeing now is is if I were to draw a contrast, and we actually make this point in the book, um, what we're seeing now is much more of an emphasis on I'll call it a discovery-oriented mindset rather than an analytical, conventional mindset. Hmm. So what we're looking for is can you spot things early? Can you react fast? Uh, do you put equal attention and emphasis on finding new things as, as you do on exploiting the old things. So there's a, a whole series of things, I think, that are really different, uh, created by the conditions that we find ourselves in today. And does that talk to the kind of manager that you're interacting with now as opposed to the manager in the 80s? Obviously, the environment is different. The mm -hmm. ecosystem is different. The mm -hmm. Internet is different. But are you also dealing with, let me put it to you in stark contrast, less of a corporate type who's making these decisions, more of an entrepreneur? Or um, I guess is it nature versus nurture? Who's winning out? <laughs> well, I always get asked the question, can you teach entrepreneurship? And uh, my standard answer to that is you I can't teach you drive. I can't teach you passion. I can teach you how to stop making stupid mistakes. You know, <laughs> that's kind of how we look at it. That's why you and I are going to get together. There you go. Um, I think the type of manager who's successful in these environments very often is someone who's a, call them a broker, who can connect different parts of today's organizations that are often physically far-flung, who can get people on board quickly, who can sell their ideas quickly, uh, much more reliant on informal sources of influence than on the formal authority. So I think we're seeing more desire for those skills in companies. Now, here's where we get to one of the huge dilemmas, I think, that face today's organizations, which is that we still have HR personnel promotion development systems drawn on the more classic hierarchical model where, you know, you had mass production, and it made a lot of sense. So, you know, if you have a... Uh, there used to be a thing called hay points, right? And that had to do with right. how many people and assets under management. And by the time you had 500 hay points, you were at the top of the dog. But we still have a lot of those systems in place. So, you know, they're not rewarding the right things in many cases, and they're providing incentives for people in companies to do the wrong things. So here's a little interesting... And, and it also anticipates that people will remain within a corporation a lot longer than they actually do now. Definitely. Oh, definitely. And in fact, one of the biggest barriers to innovation is the constant churn that we see. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, people, innovation takes some stability, ironically, to get going. You know, you need to have a, a, a focus on it for right. a, over a period of time. 
The other thing, though, that I would argue is when I do analyses of companies, I'll often say to them, hey, what gets in the way of your growth? And I get back these long, long lists of things. And it'll be, oh, you know, our incentive system, the guys that are making decisions don't get it, um, we're too siloed, we don't communicate well, we have different corporate cultures, and on and on and on. They've really analyzed the problem. Yeah, well, when you look at those issues, though, here's the fascinating thing. Those are all self-inflicted wounds. You know, these things are all within the power of the company to change. They're internal processes and decisions and approaches that get in the way. And my argument, the hopeful argument, the positive argument in the book is if you can get rid of some of that stuff, get better at doing things that make sense in these highly uncertain environments, it is within your control to do that. How do you reconcile the entrepreneurial uh, environment and the attitude of an entrepreneur with some of your examples that are very large where decisions are not as easily made as they would be made in an entrepreneurial environment. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that in reading through the book, there is, there is almost, almost always an element of scale. Mm -hmm. How many people are you interacting with? Yeah. H how do you reconcile the, the large company with the entrepreneurial mindset that he may have to check off, he or she may have to check off three bases, mm -hmm. whereas in a much larger company, you're talking about different bases in, a, in different stadia all right. over the world. Right, right. Well, that's where we pay a lot of attention in the book to how you go about implementing these ideas, and I think there's a whole chapter on that topic. The basic principles are that you want to create facilitating structures within your larger organization that take away some of the burden of doing that coordination work. So the example I might use is, say, Nokia, which has a division devoted to developing new and emerging businesses. But in that division, they have very interesting processes for how they get the right decision makers in a room how they manage to communicate what's going on with these new businesses and connect them with their existing businesses, and then eventually get them out of that new business incubation area and into a core business where they can be scaled up and leveraged. So I guess my short answer is, as a company, you have to put in place processes that would take over for some of what an entrepreneur would do just you know, intuitively. So, so process... There, there is a large degree of process that takes the place of entrepreneurial initiative. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say that's true. Because as a company, don't forget, you, you can't just rely on somebody in your company stumbling across a great idea and executing it. You know, you have to be able to do it at a, on a more rigorous, systematic basis. Where, when you teach this, uh, method, and we would get back into the method in a minute, but when you teach this, you say it's been successfully taught as part of the curricula now of uh, a number of the major business schools. Mm -hmm. um, is it different teaching it than going into corporate America and corporate global in teaching it? Well, sure. Uh, in the classroom, typically you're not dealing with live ammunition. <laughs> you're dealing with cases uh, or something that's hypothetical. Um, in, the, in the corporate world, you usually have real applications that you're working with. Um, so, for example, uh, tomorrow, in fact, I'm going to be working with uh, several teams looking at the cloud computing space at, at IBM. Uh -huh. and well, it must be fascinating. Oh, it is so interesting. We had a conference call to discuss it this morning, and it's, I'm really excited about it. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to take one of their actual real projects and work through these discovery-driven disciplines, you know, not by way of being critical of them, but by way of saying, have you really thought about these assumptions? Have you laid out when you're going to do the learning that you need to do? And so... With, with, when I work with companies directly, we tend to either work at a strategic level where we're sort of looking at the portfolio of things that they're doing and asking the question, is this going to deliver the growth your strategy requires? Or we're working at the specific initiative level where we're saying, let's understand the mechanics of getting this initiative thought through and planned so that we can do it at lowest possible cost. When you deal with this in corporate America or corporate global, is how do you convince or you've been obviously very successful with this so you've got a good bow wave but people 
clearly have to embrace the notion that this is going to work better than what has worked before. Right. How do, how do you, um, what examples do you use to say, trust me? <laughs> well, what I do is I effectively trick them, actually. Um, <laughs> what, um, what I usually do is I'll take some specific examples. So let's take the case of um, a venture capital portfolio company, right? And you know, there's a situation where you might have ten companies that you invest in of whom eight or nine are never going to be really successful, but the ones that are successful succeed beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Right. Um, then what I'll ask folks to do is say, well, okay, give me the investment logic that underlies that success. So here's, you know, here's a portfolio with a 90% rate of failure, and yet it's very successful and we would all invest in it. And so what we'll talk about then is this concept I call real options reasoning. Which basically says when you're getting... Re- say that again, real options. Real options reasoning. Okay. And the concept there is that when you're getting into a new business, you want to do what investors under highly uncertain conditions do when they're doing it right, which is you make a small investment today that buys you the right but not the obligation to make a bigger investment later on. So venture capitalists, when they're investing in one round of a business, they don't put all the money into the businesses at the first round. They get them started, incubate them a little bit, help them, and then when they're hitting a critical milestone, that's the point at which they say either we continue or we stop. So when they stop businesses, they stop them while they're still cheap and they stop them while they're still small. But if they fund them, now they're actually in a situation where you can grow the business uh, larger. So what, what happens in the seminar or in the classroom is people will talk about that idea and realize, my God, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then you contrast that with how they plan for these uncertain businesses today, and they say, wow, you know, we're really opening ourselves up to a lot of risk here because we're using an inappropriate methodology. And so I'd say the short answer is they don't need to be convinced. They discover it for themselves. It's almost like teaching children because it's good for them. (laughs) (laughs) And And they feel better for it. And I don't mean that in the slide, but as you say, you trick them. Uh-huh. Um, there are certain, obviously, tools of your trade. Um, how much of, how much, when you say IT and politics, I uh-huh. don't know how far back uh, you go with that. And I'm speaking to Rita Gunther McGrath, whose book, Discovery Driven Growth, describes, and it actually is a platform and a manual for the process to reduce risk and seize opportunity. Um, what did politics teach you? Politics teach me. What, what did you do in, as an IT professional in politics? Well, I was, um, I was in politics, straight out politics, electoral politics. I worked on a whole bunch of campaigns and helped do uh, a number of different support activities for those campaigns. This would have been in the early 80s, and these okay. were congressional campaigns and municipal campaigns and that sort of thing. And I guess what a campaign teaches you is how to get a group of people who are complete and total strangers together working on a common objective really fast. Uh, because in a in a good campaign, things happen in nanoseconds. I mean, it just goes really quickly. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I learned the political axiom in the most recent election that that a uh, well, a month is a week, a, a, uh, a week is a day, and a day is an hour. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and it does it does move like that. So it teaches you something about agility under rapidly changing conditions, and I think that was a valuable lesson I took out of that. The IT stuff and the broader political work. You know, if you think about innovation in companies, it's a very political process. You know, there are winners and there are losers and there are people who have to be convinced and you don't necessarily have all the data that you'd like to have at the time decisions need to be made. So it's, you know, can I influence you? Can you influence the next person? And so a lot of that learning has been incredibly valuable when thinking about organizational politics and organizational behavior. And I think that's really been useful for me. Is this book about organizational behavior? To some extent it is. It's about the mindset that we bring to doing new things. And so to the extent that you behave differently after you've read it, then yes, clearly it would be. We also, by the way, include two chapters. I mentioned, well, actually three chapters that are relevant to the implementation challenge. We have a, a chapter that we developed on how do you gracefully disengage from a project. Yes which is, you know, just hugely important. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, have, that's kind of a euphemism or the other way around for when they don't, presumably don't want to fund a project any further. That's right. In part, that's what disengagement's all about. Absolutely. And the magic there is to think about it like a process. You know, instead of the typical thing that happens in companies where they've decided to pull the plug and 
you know, it's kind of like a death in the family. Somebody goes and makes the announcement, and everyone weeps and hugs each other and has a kumbaya moment, and then they sort of slink off into the night. Many times their career is sort of in tatters. And, you know, our argument is it shouldn't be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way, that instead what you can think of is constructively disengaging so that you recoup the value from whatever the project has to offer, whether that's new technology or new capabilities or some other important lessons. Uh, secondly, so that you make the stakeholders whole. So, you know, in any new project, you've asked people to come on board and give up resources and do things, and you want to think through how you make them, how you address the fact that they're out, you know, some resources and whatnot. And then you want to make sure that it's understood in your organization that, I'd say, the distinction between bad management and bad luck. <laughs> you know, I mean, bad luck can happen to anybody. And I, some I guess a lot of people now could say it was bad luck and it may have been bad management. Well, right. You know, and I think what's interesting about these current times is, you know, when everything's good, it's not hard to look brilliant. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it takes real skill to look halfway decent when things are really tough. And I think we're going to see a lot of uh, less than attractive, um, sorry, less than competent management get flushed out a bit uh, as, as, as we see, continue to see the fallout from these current economic times. But um, I think the, the aspects of the book that really get into organization also have to do with, well, so disengaging is a big one. How do you implement these ideas? And every company is a little different. Some companies are very top-down. You know, the boss says we're going to do it, so we're going to do it. Some companies are much more sort of um, middle-up. <laughs> and, sure. and, uh, and then some companies have these structures that facilitate introducing these kinds of ideas. So no, there's no one-size-fits-all approach there. And then our last um, chapter, we talk about how you keep these ideas living. So don't just make it a flavor of the month. How do you now embed it in the way that you do business? Yeah, I was... I was I did flip through to the back of of the book and I, I did notice you you took through three uh, five different levels so you said if you happen to be a senior executive or a CEO and it says what it can do and it says if you're a division head you can uh, learn from this and if you're a younger manager or an employee just starting out you can do certain things and if you're a person with a staff position um, in a not-for-profit, uh, you can use the technique to build better business, and I'd like to get to that in a second. And then I see the best is, and for the potential entrepreneur in many of us, and it ends, best of luck. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting encapsulation. When you talk about dis- discovery-driven growth, do you find that people, because of the Internet, and because people are exposed much more easily to new ideas, or not, perhaps not more easily, but there are more, there's more information, more new ideas, that the, I'm coming back to the current situation we're in, that it is difficult for the leaders who are rife with legacy thinking, both in the corporate and the political world, will they be able to adjust? Could you reinstate discovery-driven growth back into them at an earlier stage and salvage them? Well, I believe yes. Um, And let me just take the case of GM. You know, GM for years ignored early warnings that their business was not operating in a sustainable way. I mean, they were not growing. They were shrinking for years and years. Um, And the changes that were being made were very, very tentative and not... You're not positioning them well for the future. Um, so I think, yeah, GM certainly, and the, the concept I would have started with them is looking at this idea of portfolios that we have in the book, which is... Explain that. Yeah, well, the, what we argue is, as you think about where you're making investments, and it's particularly appropriate today, um, there are some investments that essentially keep your core business healthy, you know, that are better, faster, cheaper, more convenient, operationally smoother, that kind of thing. And those are very important. You have to do those. That what buys you the right to continue to develop. Next, in a le- level of uncertainty, you have what I call platforms. And some companies call these adjacencies. These are things that are producing for tomorrow's future business. So they can, they're investments you're making that could conceivably build up a core business for you for the future. So if you take something like Microsoft's investment in gaming technology, you know, very clearly they don't know exactly what that's going to lead to in the long run, but it's going to teach them an awful lot about certainly games, which is another kind of computer platform, but also things like human interface technologies, how people respond to software, what the, you know, attractive 
interactive uh, opportunities are going to be for social networking through their Xbox Live offer. So, you know, it's an adjacent business to their core office desktop franchise, but could be a part of their core business in the future. And then you could see that maybe happening. Then if you think about the most uncertain conditions, what you have are these real options, as I described earlier. So these are small investments that you're making that buy you the right to get into a particular space, literally to keep your options open. So if you look at a company like GM, my guess is they just didn't have a very functional way of managing their portfolio. So they let their core kind of eat up massive amounts of the revenue that they needed for new growth. They didn't have a whole lot of adjacencies. Um, you know, they, they made so much money on those big trucks and SUVs that they became excessively dependent on that and didn't have other things to su- support them. And when you look at the options they took out, I think they were kind of half-hearted about them. And, you know, I, I don't, I've never worked with GM, but my guess is a really lonely place to be is the new technology or new product development person at GM because right. you've got so much of the weight of that core business just rushing right past you. Um, same kind of situation with the financial services companies, although I think in their case, what they didn't do was manage the downside. So they took out a lot of, in their case, real you know, financial options without recognizing what the risk profile that they were creating actually was. And of course, we all know that was exacerbated by their incentive systems. So I think had we been doing more risk analysis for the financial services companies, at some point, somebody would have said, hey, you know, the downside here is whoa, more than you guys want to be taking on. I mean, by the time you're getting into leverage ratios of 30 to 1, right. you know, that's just crazy. T- t- staying with, uh, I have two questions. Mm-hmm. One, one, I'm going to go back to your adjacencies, but before that, there was a great deal of attention paid in the financial services business to, quote, risk managers. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard that it said that risk management starts with assumptions and if you make the wrong assumptions you will come out in a different spot than if you had fully vetted those assumptions absolutely what were the risk managers doing for the two or three years before the fall they were working with flawed models is one um, either their time frames were too short or they didn't look at the systemic implications of what they were doing or the models just didn't allow the numbers to take on the ranges that they actually did. Uh, I have been told of one bank where none of the models assumed a negative value for underlying asset values, like home home prices, for example. They assumed, you know, the model assumed it only went in one direction. Right. <laughs> you know, if you're working with a flawed model, that's going to be a problem. You wonder where they went to business school. Yeah, really. Um, well, you know, and I... I mean, it's easy now to point fingers and, and look backwards and say... That sounded like a very frustrating sigh. Right, but I think certainly in, if you take a 26-year-old MBA who graduated in um, 2003, let's yep. say, um, there is nothing in their experience that would tell them real estate values go down. You know, they would have said, oh, that's isolated, there may be pockets where that happens, but, you know, in general, real estate values always go up because we have all this evidence that that's the case. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's... At a human level, it's easy to understand why that happens. Um, the other big set of assumptions I don't think those risk managers took into account were the business risk assumptions. So you might look at the financial risk, you might look at the counterparty risk, um, that kind of thing. But if you look at the sort of, call it business model risk, right? I don't think those have a, a role in many risk managers' models. And I'll follow that with a question, and I'll come back to adjacencies. Um, when people talk about markets getting frothy, uh-huh. uh, bubble up, there's a bubble economy. Um, why wouldn't that? Would your dro- discovery-driven growth would that address bubbles? Um, yes and no, and and it will help you think through the extent to which you're exposing yourself to a bubble going wrong. So okay. it would it would tend to reinforce that. Now, the, 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 the huge dilemma with bubbles is that they don't behave themselves according to prescriptions of rationality. Okay. And it is possible to make an awful lot of money if you happen to be on the right side of a bubble. And so... Which, re- the, which reinforces that you must be doing something right. Exactly. And so even though what you're doing maybe doesn't make any sense whatsoever, if you're being carried along by that bubble, you can look like a, a genius. 
Um, so one of the depressing aspects of using discovery-driven planning is you can go through it and say, my God, this makes absolutely no sense. And then people come into your office and say, well, I made $2 million last month. What did you make? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? A very compelling argument under the circumstances. Well, and we saw a lot of that, for example, in the dot-com era, right? Um, I mean, it was so depressing to teach entrepreneurship in the dot-com era because nothing made any sense. You know, people were saying dot, and they were getting VC money before the word com came out of their mouth. Um, and all they, could, all they had to do was have a computer and a connection. Yeah. And they thought they could create value. Right, right. And I think, you know, bubbles, you see that uh, behavior. Now, the, good, the, the more positive way of looking at it is I can help you not go desperately wrong when you're in the presence of a bubble. Um, and, you know, some of my clients, for example, M&T Bank, which is a Buffalo, I don't know if you know them, they're a Buffalo-based um, community I do. I bank. think I've seen uh, their insignia. Yeah, they do. Um, they do business banking in New York. They're not correct. Into yes, thank you very much. That's exactly where I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, when they were in the height of this financial services bubble, I was and I was working with them, and we just looked at the n- amount of new entry into banking, the way pricing was working, and they were tearing their hair out because everybody was saying, "Oh my God, M and T Bank, you guys are this regional, boring Buffalo bank. You're so conventional. You guys just don't get it." <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And yet, when we did the analysis, we said, wait a minute, there's just so many ways that could go wrong, and only a few ways it could go right. Let's not go there. So I think they were very sensible and clever about that. Yeah, now, I think uh, on that note, uh, Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Corp, HSBC, mm-hmm. was also prudent because they stuck to their knitting and, the, and their own personal philosophy, which happened to run counter to the way the world was going until 2008. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, think now about all the companies that were criticized for having a lot of cash, like Microsoft, right? Everybody was saying, oh, you guys should be leveraging the power of your bank or your balance sheet, right? Well, ha-ha, today cash is king, and those companies that are creating good cash positions have a lot more strategic options than those that are leveraging themselves like crazy. So, well, I mean, one of the frustrating things, I think, about these bubble kinds of environments are that a lot of, in the long run, things that are proven to be rational will kick in again. But when you're in the middle of one, it's very hard to call it. And you can often look bad relative to your peers if you're not riding the wave like everybody else. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of this was uh, an interview that Chuck Prince, who was then the CEO of Citigroup, gave to the Financial Times. And he was asked by this reporter why Citigroup was continuing to make so many loans to private equity deals, for private equity deals. And his response was, "Hey, you know, when the music when the music's playing, you got to get up there and dance. Right. They're still dancing." I remember the quote. Remember the quote. Yep. Um, and that's the kind of mindset that people get beset with in a bubble. You know, the music's still playing. We got to be up there. If we're not participating, we're going to lose out. And no amount of logic at that point, in many cases, seems to be enough to stop them. It's a. Uh, it's either a poison, a curse, or an elixir. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps them all going come back to your uh, point about adjacencies. Is there something inherent in the discovery mechanisms within Apple computer that makes them seem to be more attuned to discovery-driven growth than Microsoft? Um, What's the DNA? What, does it work all because of jobs? Is it? Is it? I mean, it would strike me that uh, in the cash position, not... not uh, notwithstanding of Microsoft that, um, you know, with Vista and a variety of other things, uh, it just seems that Apple does it again and again and again. And I wonder how you would overlay discovery-driven growth on those two companies. Um, Well, I should probably tell you first that I do a fair amount of work with Microsoft. I'm aware of that. (laughs) Okay. Your Uh, book says so, so I'm not... I'm sorry? Your book so says. That's right, and I haven't actually worked ever with Apple, so what you're hearing me talk about is from an external perspective. Understood. Apple's like a venture capital company. Um, Everybody remembers the iPod and the color-coded candy, you know, candy-colored machines. Remember those? Um, Everybody remembers the iPhone. You know, who still remembers the Cube? Who still remembers the, um, you know, that handheld thing that they were doing? I mean, who even remembers the Apple Lisa? Yeah, or Next. Sorry? Or Next. Or or Next, right. So here's my take on Apple, which is, I think, one of the things they do well. (laughs) Speaking at it from your perspective, very helpful. Yeah. I enjoy this. Yeah. Uh, From my perspective is, I think they're very good at doing what venture capitalists do, which is they don't do a lot of market research. They spend no money on that. They spend a lot of time out with consumers and possible users in their actual environments thinking of 
you know, what are new solutions to endemic problems that, that, that might be amenable to our technology? And they spend a lot of time prototyping and developing and getting stuff out there. But they've had their fair share of flops. Now, we forgive them that because when they succeed, they tend to succeed really big. Yep. Um, and we also, I mean, I think one of the other things they do particularly well is they think about the total experience with their products and services. So it's not just that it's an iPod. It's a whole ecosystem behind that iPod that makes it easy to use, attractive, that ropes in all the alliance partners and everything else. You know, if you think about MP3 players, we've had MP3 players for probably a decade before the Apple iPod. Um, and, you know, they were the ones that were able to pull it all together. So if you were to ask me kind of where, where do I think they're going, I think you're going to start to see an Apple-style Kindle, you know, doing for books what they did for music. Uh-huh. Uh, that would not surprise me at all. Um, I think you're going to start to see Apple getting into applications of technologies that know where you are and use that knowledge to give value to your offers. And some of that stuff's going to work out great, and some of it's not. But we'll forgive them the stuff that doesn't work out for the stuff that does. Um, so if I were to now go back to Microsoft, I mean, there's a company that does an incredible amount of, of experimentation with things. Um, and, and they do that quite consciously with their teams and how uh-huh. they approach a project. Absolutely. They have a thing they call quests at Microsoft, which are really long-term, five- to seven-year visions for different kinds of things. So how do we use haptic technology? What are, what's going to happen with uh, consumer interfaces. What is haptic technology? Haptic is where a computer deals with you or responds to you with touch, by touch. Okay. So uh, So what does the term refer to? Haptic, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure what what it comes, I think it comes from the Greek, and I think it means to touch. Okay. But for example, let's say you have is, a... Is that an industry term or a Microsoft term? It's an industry term. Okay, thank you. An industry term, yeah. Um, like terrestrial radio as opposed to Internet radio. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Um, but a hap- haptic would be, let's say, that you um, d- touch your device and it responds to you depending on... Let's say you want to know what temperature it is, and it'll kind of give you one bump if it's below 50, two bumps if it's 50 to 70, three bumps if it's above 70, that kind of thing. Right. So it's, it's in- interacting with you by so, touch rather than by vision. So, sort of along the same lines, I think the BlackBerry tried to put a little bit of a touch on its screen yeah. when you typed. Yeah, the BlackBerry you know Storm. You didn't, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that okay. kind of thing. All right. But, you know, down the road, if you think about digital devices, I hesitate to call them computers, but digital devices that can interact with us by touch, that just opens up massive amounts of, of potential in terms of applications. You, know, you could think of them in healthcare, for example. Um, you could think of them in, in monitoring, security. You know, there's a lot of different places where you could see that kind of technology becoming really important. Um, so Microsoft does a lot of this stuff. Here's, I think, what, what I see as one of their challenges. Um, the first challenge is it's really hard to get enough critical attention on new things when your existing things are so successful. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you I don't want to take, uh, take your eye off. Right. eggs in the nest. Exactly. And so I think there's a bit of a kind of a balance challenge that they face. Um, the other thing I think Microsoft struggles with, and I think they're getting a lot better, but classically, you know, in the past, they think about what they do in terms of the software um, and not necessarily in terms of the total user experience with that software. Mm-hmm. And it has to do, I think, with actually a rather endearing part of the company's culture, which is they like to push decision-making about technical things to as low a level as possible. So contrast that to Apple, where technical decisions get made at a very high level. You know, how should it look? How should it feel? How's it going to interact? That's not a, a team decision. That's a that's a you know very high, I very high level decision. <laughs> so what Apple's able to do is make these design decisions that affect the architecture of the whole product. Whereas with Microsoft, you know, if you want to do if you want to cut and paste a piece of text in Word or PowerPoint or Excel. There's probably 15 ways to do that. Why? Because they've made the decision that they're going to let their best engineers come up with the best solutions to performing that particular task, and they're going to put them all in the offer so that when you make a decision about how you're going to use your software, you can personalize it to your own wishes. You know, so, I mean, we complain a lot about, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're not, um, the, 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 their, their products are confusing and they're not intuitive and this and that, but I think it stems from an actual kind of nice impulse, which is we want to give you, the user, all the choice about how you interact with these machines that we can, rather than just one choice, one solution. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I'm speaking with great interest to Rita Gunther-McGrath. The book is Discovery-Driven Growth, 
Harvard Business Press is the imprint, a breakthrough process to reduce risk and seize opportunity, uh, written in conjunction with co-author uh, Ian McMillan. And um, uh, Dr. McGrath has, has quite a background on which to base a lot of the things um, that she's both teaching in the uh, academic environment and also in the uh, area of, uh, of uh, corporate interface. Talk to us about um, the not-for-profit world and how discovery-driven growth can be used there. It seems to me it's a, uh, an increasingly important part of our economy now that we see that if not-for-profit industries rely on philanthropy or something else to keep them going, they're in a new bind that they haven't faced before, and I'll put museums and the arts and hospitals in all that. How can capitalism uh, benefit in the not-for-profit world from discovery-driven growth? Well, the and we actually had a chapter in the book on not-for-profits, which ended up on, on the cutting room floor because it was felt, well, you know, it dilutes the base, basic message of the book. Um, but I have two points of view on that. Firstly, I think government is going to be more and more important to everyday decisions made by everybody. You know, I just think you're not going to be able to get away from the much more pervasive uh, interaction with government than we had perhaps, you know, beginning in the Ronald Reagan era. Can you say whether, in your opinion, that's a good or a bad thing with regard to process? Um, well, I think we've clearly seen the negative consequences of of government uninvolvement in places where, you know, you needed to have some rules. Lack of regulation where regulation clearly would have yeah. maybe and I mean, avoided some of the problems we have. Yes, I agree. Um, the, you know, an example there would be if you look at the rules around extending credit to people via credit cards. You know, several decades ago, there were rules about that. There were things called usury laws, and you couldn't mislead people and, you know, kind of giving people this line about how, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be affordable for you and all that kind of stuff, that was not legal. <laughs> you, right. know? you could not do that. You could not do that, at least not legally. Well, and you, and you couldn't ratchet up your balance sheet to 30 to 40 to 1. Exactly. So I think there are clear places where government basically abdicated its role as a maker of rules. And if you think about what makes capitalism work, and I'll come back to your question on not-for-profits in just a sec, but if you think about what makes capitalism work, there's some necessary preconditions. Precondition number one is you have to have a, a predictable set of rules around property rights. Right? I have to know whether I own something or not, and if I do own it, what, what rights that extends to me. Um, second, you have to have a certain amount of predictability and clarity around the rules within which you are operating. So what's okay to do, what's not okay to do. And uh, I think the third is you have to have... Um, enough transparency about the value of goods that are traded that people can make decisions with some degree of confidence about whether the investment's a good one or not. I'm trying, so, to, I'm trying to remember the first time I heard transparency in a business context. Uh-huh. When would you say it, it emerged became, in the I corporate think, lexicon? Yeah, I think it got to be mainstream around the time of Sarbanes-Oxley. Yeah. So that would be the yeah, early, point. early 2000s. Um, but it's always been there in the financial markets. People always said, you know, if you're not transparent, that's, that's the problem. But if you, if you sort of take those three preconditions to having capitalism work, if, if your government's not creating the rules of the road there, you know, that's, that's going to undermine people's willingness to take risks because they're not sure what the property rights are. They're not mm -hmm. sure what the regulatory regime they're operating in is or, or anything like that. Okay, so, um, so I do think government so vastly stepping back, and, and also being undermined. I mean, as I speak as someone who was in the government in the 1980s, and it was considered at that time an honorable, interesting place to have a career. Now, maybe you weren't going to make as much money as somebody who was in the corporate life, but it wasn't going to be living in poverty, and it was considered respectable. And, you know, in the intervening 20 years or so, I think that's changed. And so we're not perhaps drawing on as much of a talent pool as we once did for government. I think a lot of the most recent administrative decisions have been to kind of disembowel a lot of the power of really good people who were in government. So I'm a big believer in <laughs> government as a, okay. as a partner to, as a partner to business. I, okay. I think, you know, you can go wrong when it gets, when it usurps too much territory, but I think you need it. Now coming back to not-for-profits. Um, and, and that capitalism and government intervention can coexist. Absolutely. 
Exactly. Okay. You know, you can't have markets without trading rules. <laughs> bring, on the, bring on the rules. Please. Well, some kind of rules. You know. um, now, back to not-for-profit. Yeah. Um, the thing that I think discovery-driven growth helps there is, first of all, helping them with this question of what does success look like. Um, you know, in a business context, it's pretty easy to figure out what success looks like. When you're in a not-for-profit context, very often that's a negotiated thing. So if you're a symphony orchestra or if you're a dance company or if you're you know, an opera or if you're a local organization to protect the homeless, it's not completely clear what success looks like. So you have to kind of negotiate that. And getting that level of clarity is very, very valuable. So we have an organization here where I live in Mercer County that basically says what we want to do within 10 years is eradicate the homeless condition here. Now, that's pretty ambitious, but at least it's clear. Once you have that end point in mind, now, just as you do with the business plan, now you work backward into what are the resources you can leverage to achieve those results. So in the case of most not-for-profits, it would be their time. So, you know, let's say I'm an opera organization and I want to make sure that I can run six performances and that those performances are 75% or more full. Well, what have you got to work with to make that happen? And when you think about it, there's resources. You know, there's your, your advisory board. There's your... Um, uh, people that work for you, there's your fundraisers and so forth. Um, and so how do you now get more bang for the buck for them, for that organization? So typically you're leveraging your time or other resources that you hold to try to hit that success outcome. One of our favorites uh, that we actually did was we worked with a minister uh, who wanted to increase the size of his flock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so a what we did Well, right. And so what we did was given how much he wanted to grow the size of the congregation, um we went through all the different things he could do to accomplish that goal and then how much time he could allocate into each one of them and that was his discovery driven plan. <laughs> and did that work? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was really pleased with the outcome. Tease out for us in the in the not-for-profit world your sense of what are the law, what are the real goals in healthcare? I don't know whether you've worked within healthcare. I didn't see exa- a, a precise example in the book, but mm-hmm. that's maybe I didn't look closely enough. But it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about here in America in terms of improving, I guess, growing healthcare? Well, with healthcare, you have two. It's kind of like immovable force meets irresistible object kind of situations. You have conditions around access to health care, so who has access. And then you have conditions around the affordability of health care. And what we've seen a lot of examples is you can work on access, but probably at the expense of affordability. You can work on affordability, but probably at the expense of access. Um, very few technologies or opportunities at this stage show the potential, at least that I've seen, of hitting both of those, so wider access but more affordable health care. I mean, that would be the whole right. grail. Yep. So I think the dilemma that we have in the States is we have not had a forthright conversation about how do you make those trade-offs, and we don't even have a language for doing it. So if you look at, for example, the state of Massachusetts, they decided <laughs> to try to do both. Right. Right? And, yeah. you know, the, the resulting demand is just going to sink their budget. So I think what you can do is you can say, we're going to make access broadly available to certain categories of disease, let's say, um, and we're only going to do that for the ones that are more affordable to treat. So, you know, preventive measures for things like diabetes care is, is a nice example. Or, um, you know, I could see, for example, remote monitoring rather than having people coming in and occupying expensive real estate, um, that kind of stuff. So, you know, but I think where we where we have not yet successfully argued this through is how are we going to make those trade-offs but in and i'm looking at the roadmap of the book always uh-huh. very helpful at the very beginning um and, and you go through literally brick by brick mm-hmm. if i were looking as i am right now at it where is the cell that would address some of the nuance of health care the cell well i mean the, the building block here yeah right at the beginning right at the beginning so it's part of it's going to depend on who you are so if you're a health insurer, that you're going to have a different right. place enough. to yep. be than if you're Depends a hospital. where you are in the healthcare system. It, that's, and part of that is problematic because the different players have completely different incentives and motivations in, in healthcare. Truly. Um, so the first 
the first place to start is, again, with this definition of what a success means. So if I'm an insurer, you know, I want to get as many claims in the door, I mean, as many um, payments in the door as I can, and as few claims out the door as possible. Uh, and that's and not they, necessarily... And they certainly seem to try and do that on a daily basis. Well, that's their business. I mean, that you do the same if you were in one of their shoes. Um, versus as a hospital, you know, if I'm a hospital that gets paid, let's say, by how much activity I engage in, which is quite often, then, you know, you want as much activity as possible regardless of outcome. So there's all these kind of missing places in the system where the incentives for one party are either at odds with or inconsistent with the incentives for others. So I think, depending on who you are, you'd want to start off with, well, what does success look like for me? Now, let's say I was, oh, I don't know, the healthcare czar looking at the whole country. Yep. You know, what I'd want to be doing is saying, okay. like Mr. Ratner being the auto czar. Right, right. <laughs> um, what I'd want to do at that point is say, okay, if this is the level of access I want to provide, how much am I willing to spend on it? And then work backward into who in our system is going to be responsible for living up to which initiative. So if you were to take it at a really global level, that's an interesting question. You know, you've got a certain amount of access for a certain price, right? Now you've got to say, okay, insurers, here's your job, you know, which is to make sure that um, the, the amount of access we're prepared to fund can be offered. The, you know, healthcare providers, here's your job, you know, to make sure that the quality of care that people are receiving, in which is included in the access, is, uh, you know, of the right quality. You know, At least acceptable. It's acceptable, right? And so you could go through each of the different players and try to align them and align their incentives around this broader goal. The big problem is we don't have anybody or any institution right now that has a national goal around that stuff. Right. Very, very regional. Um, to the larger point, and uh, delightful speaking with uh, Rita Gunther McGrath, because you, I can ask sort of outrageous questions and, and get very good and coherent answers. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, and no, I mean that it's a, you're very uh, obviously articulate on the on the on the on the case. When you look at the economy writ large, are you in the camp of somebody saying if we try and set too many national wrongs right, that we will be unable to achieve it simply because we're trying to do too much at once? And if that is not true, then we're on the right course. If it is, if it is true, where would you start? Um, here's my view on that, and I'm afraid I'm going to be a little controversial. Remember I, I told you about my flops file? Yeah. And how much study we did of things that went wrong? Yep. If you think about things that go wrong, and I'll just start with business projects, what you tend to see is untested assumptions taken as fact, very few low-commitment experiments to learn what really works and doesn't work. Leaders absolutely committed passionately to the particular project um, and no kind of role for redirecting or rethinking what you're doing. Now, take the TARP. Disengagement. Well, and getting out of things, right. Take our, our friend the TARP. Yep. Low-commitment tests? No articulated clear assumptions about what's going to cause what? No. Leaders absolutely committed to that being the right course of action? Uh-huh. And so... September 15th. Well, right. And, you know, if you kind of systematically go through this, and I'm, I'm not being political about this, it's just if you look at what we know, you know, we know this about when big, big projects of any kind go sadly wrong. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And I'm afraid a lot of those characteristics are there in a lot of these big ambitious programs that are being proposed now. Um, I read an article, I think it was in Time, talking about how Obama's strategy is kind of all in. No, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. Everything's on the table, healthcare, education, saving our financial system, and on and on energy. and on. I mean, it's energy. You know, it's a huge agenda. And it's a general rule. Huge agendas have a lot more potential to go wrong than more modest ones. <laughs> so I guess my, my view on that is that you know, leaving aside the question, I mean, the American economy can get a lot of stuff done. My worry is that, just like a company, how are you testing what you need to test so that you're moving forward with confidence rather than moving forward blindly? And I guess as a, a corollary to that is that the political process might only be able to absorb or pursue or focus on one thing at a time. Mm. Uh, because if you get people multitasking 
you may find that they don't reach any one of the goals for because of the competition of reasonable goods. Let us allow you to give a summary, and the U is Rita Gunther McGrath, the book, Discovery Driven Growth. I am Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work to Work Walk, your audio guide to the workplace, delightful discussion. Uh, Harvard Business Press is the imprint, Discovery Driven Growth Summary. The summary. Discovery Driven Growth is a how-to manual for people who would like to operate more confidently under conditions of uncertainty by providing an alternative to the conventional tools we use for planning, for forecasting, and for making financial decisions. The heart of the process is driving your strategy through a series of discoveries, hence the title, at each one of which you're limiting your downside risk while pursuing more and more upside potential, uh, taking it very systematically step by step. It involves articulating and documenting your assumptions, making very clear operational judgments about how your businesses are going to work, and tying the whole portfolio of activities that you're working on to the strategic goals of the organization. Uh, we also include in the book some insight into how to stop projects, which is also important if you're going to get into new areas, as well as how to implement these things and keep them going. On the last point, I understood that part of the business school curriculum was never to think about starting a business by embedding in it what would happen if something went wrong. Is that still valid? No, we talk a lot about when things don't go right in a business. In entrepreneurship classes, absolutely. And in terms of your summary, the book and the process is a valid one for virtually any size organization, starting out with somebody who is looking for their first partner? Definitely, definitely. You know, it's just a question of how you scale it. Um, so what's going to work for General Electric is probably going to be different than, you know, mom's um, furniture store. <laughs> but right. the basic principles are the same. Last question. Are you hopeful in the near term as to where, whether we're going to get where we need to be in order to avoid political and economic chaos? I am. I am. Um, you know, the phrase cautiously optimistic comes to mind. You know, I, there's a lot of smart people really working on figuring this thing out. Um, there are a lot of, I'd say, very talented business leaders who are not letting themselves get frozen in the headlights by, you know, the latest headline, uh, and they're really making future-oriented investments. Um, to me, the biggest problem is those three points of capitalism that we need to go back to, right? We don't yet know what the rules are going to be. We don't yet know what the right of property regime is going to be, and we don't yet know what the uh, principles are going to be under which we will operate for the future. So once that stuff gets cleared up, I'm very optimistic because people will then be willing to invest again with confidence and uh, go forward. And with that, I will close with um, your last comment on the book, which is, I guess, to all of us, best of luck. Absolutely. <laughs> Rita uh, Gunther McGrath, thank you very much for your time this afternoon for McLaughlin at Work. Thank you for having me. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk, your premier audio guide to the workplace, bringing you the best of management leadership and employment practices, sponsored by Classroom 24-7, web-based learning, certification training, just like the classroom, except over the web. Give them a click through, see what they have to offer, get the most out of Everything that McLaughlin at Work offers. In the coming weeks, we've got some guests who want to share their knowledge. David Meerman Scott, best-selling author of The New Rules of Marketing and PR. And he has created a new book, Worldwide Rave, about triggers to get millions of people to spread your ideas and share your stories. Very much web-based. I think you'll find it very Quite informative, insightful, easy reading, easy listening. David Scott. Also, Jason Jennings. Jason's written a book about 10 special leaders of the last decade. Special research, too, to identify who they were and what their causes of success, what we can learn. A manual to learn how other people have done it with a lot of advantages. Jason Jennings, forthright, honest, an accomplished international speaker and somebody in great demand. And you'll understand why when you listen to him. 
catch up with our good friend uh, Eddie Erlinson. We talked with Eddie when his book, The Alpha Male Syndrome, first arrived in the fall of 2006. Reconnected with Eddie, talked about uh, what he's learned since, how applicable that methodology, that research, those findings are in 2009. You'll want to hear that. Wonderful man, somebody I've come to admire in his work, both with the Worth Ethics consultation service that he has, as well as some of his new discoveries, if you will, around the alpha male syndrome. You'll want to hear from Eddie Erlinson when he airs in a couple of weeks. So we got David Meerman Scott. We have Eddie Erlinson. We have Jason Jennings all here on McLaughlin at Work. Good show and a better audience. And that's what makes it all work. Looking forward to your joining me again next week for another episode of McLaughlin at Work.